0: Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue studying God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church to call your own, a place that you can gather with other believers and serve together and learn together and grow together, we'd love to invite you to come and to worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and our worship service begins at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Now, if you need more information, check us out at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is wrapping up his 50 Days That Changed the World series as he shares a message from Acts chapter 2, verses 1-13 through 13, entitled, This is That. Let's listen together.
1: Our text today takes place 50 days after Passover. 50 days or just under 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus and almost seven weeks after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, if you remember, he was crucified, he was raised on the third day, and he spent 40 days on earth and then he ascended back to heaven. And then 10 days after he ascended back to heaven, we come to what is our text today, the day of Pentecost, uh, which is ultimately 50 days uh, in total after the Passover. During those 40 days, Jesus appeared to his apostles multiple times, at least three or four times that we have recorded in scripture. He has shown himself to over 500 people at one time. We don't find that in the Gospels. We find that being mentioned by Paul over in his letter to the Corinthians. We know that he met with his half-brother by the name of James and probably another half-brother by the name of Jude because they were doubters all of their lives but became believers after his resurrection and wrote books that are part of our New Testament canon. During that time, he restored Peter to useful service and ministry. And then as we discussed last week, he gave what we know, what we call the Great Commission to the church. And so then in Acts chapter 1, we have him uh, restating that commission in, in fewer words, but he restated and reaffirmed the great commission, and he was taken up in a cloud to hev- into heaven. And as the apostles were watching that and gazing, they didn't even realize that two angels came to stand near them and say to them basically, You men from Galilee, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that is being taken up is going to come again. But before he left, one last time he told his disciples to wait, to remain in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism, not of the Holy Ghost, It's not the Holy Spirit doing the baptizing. It is God doing the baptizing. It is the baptism with or in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. So thus we have today, 2,000 years later, Pentecost. And the very Word, the very mention of the Word, elicits various responses from Christ followers. Some people respond basically by scratching their heads in bewilderment of what that day was all about and what that event means to us today. Others respond to it with passion and they can't even sit still just when they think about it. Others, like a lot of Baptists, respond to the idea of Pentecost with a bit of trepidation and fear. Oh my, Pentecost. There are those people who just get crazy over that, and so we tend to go the other way, and we neglect it altogether. While many embrace the event that we will read about today, giving it a life and meaning it was never intended to have. Others choose to ignore it out of fear and a lack of understanding. It has been touted as the great unifying experience that if all Christians will just surrender themselves and seek what they call the baptism of the Holy Ghost or of the Spirit, they say it will change everything. Some even go so far who carry the name of Pentecost in their name as Pentecostals, in their theology and in their doctrine, if you don't have that experience, and if you don't speak in unknown tongues, then you are not a saved person. For the speaking in tongues is to them the evidence of true conversion. So what do we do with all of that? What is the deal with it? What really happened when you get into these verses? And what does it mean for you and me today? Well, before we read the passage, I need to explain to you my text. What in the world is that sermon titled, This is That? That sounds kind of weird. What's that all about? Well, to understand it, you have to go back to an Old Testament prophet who wrote a small book. His name was Joel. And in the book of Joel, chapter 2, we find that Joel, in his letter, and in his prophecy, he is writing to the Israelites who have been taken away into Babylonian captivity. And he is a prophet that is saying to them, hey, this captivity is not the end of the story. God is going to restore the nation of Israel. God still is, is at work among his people and that deliverance from captivity will come. And in the midst of that prophecy, in the midst of giving those reassuring words to God's people who were alive at that time some 2,500 years ago from where we sit today, In the midst of that, he had a vision and he began to prophesy also about something that was going to happen way in the future. And these are his words in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Now, he goes on in that train of thought, and we know from looking at what took place in the book of Acts and in thinking about those other verses that he was prophesying about, What was going to happen on the day of Pentecost, and some of it would be fulfilled then, but some of it is even yet to be fulfilled. It is still yet future. But he prophesied about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when Peter stands up and preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 2, that part of the passage we will not read, Peter connects what is taking place on that day, uh, the coming of the Spirit, he connects that as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And he says, this that you're seeing is that which Joel the prophet prophesied. This today is that that was spoken 500 years ago. So, this Is that the coming of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to the church? So, with that background, follow along as I read the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. I love that. They were all amazed and perplexed, scratching their heads, saying, What does this mean? And we've been asking that question for 2,000 years. What does it mean? Well, the skeptics had an explanation. Those guys have just gotten into some new wine a little early in the day, and that explains it. But it doesn't explain it. This passage of Scripture, the Baptist I grew up with would have been happy If the Lord had never included it in the Bible. Because we just never knew for sure what to do with it. Let me give you an outline of this passage. Let me kind of put a skeleton to it. And make some explanation along the way. And I want this to be more than just information. That's very important. Because we have to act on what is the true information. But I hope it will be of inspiration to you as well. Point number one. The preparation for Pentecost the preparation. Understand that these Jewish men and women, they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, many of them from all parts of the world, and those who could afford to do so stayed over In Jerusalem for another seven weeks to celebrate the Feast of Weeks as well. They were anticipating the Jewish holiday where they would offer up, where the priests would offer up uh, some loaves of bread that symbolized the first fruits of the harvest. And so they were anticipating that. But Jesus had spoken those cryptic words, stay in Jerusalem and tarry here because the Holy Spirit is going to come. You are going to be clothed with power from on high. And I'm sure even the apostles, even hearing those words, weren't for sure what that was all about. But notice what it said, if you go back one chapter, in Acts chapter 1 with verse 14. Speaking of these followers of Christ, by the way, these followers of Christ that are gathered now in Jerusalem and have been since, uh, since the day of Passover, since the crucifixion and resurrection, numbered about 120, okay? There were about 120 There on that day, some some two times the number of our congregation today, that was what was gathered in the name of Christ. They were meeting in an upper room where they had met with Jesus. The disciples had taken the Last Supper, probably the same place. They were somewhat uh, fearful for their lives because they had seen what the religious leaders did to Jesus and were threatening to do to them as well. And so here they were uh, anticipating the Feast of Weeks, the day of Pentecost. And it says in verse 14 all these, all 120, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here they were huddled together living there in in one accord with each other. They were in step with each other. They were followers of Christ, followers of the Messiah, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. And basically, two words describe this early church better than any others. First of all, they were unified. They were unified. They were together in one accord. That means with one heart they were in unity with each other this had been the prayer of Jesus the night before he was crucified he prayed for unity that prayer of the Lord in John chapter 17 he prays for unity for his people in chapter 2 verse 1 a verse we read just a moment ago it said to us that they were all together in one place so they not only had a unity of heart a unity of attitude and outlook, they had a unity, they were unified in one place. They weren't scattered all over the city at this point. They were not all off doing their own things in other places. And they, they, were, they were meeting and sticking close together in, in one place, in uh, one spirit. There were... Uh, There was a unity that uh, marked them. But the second word is the word praying. They were praying. In fact, they were doing more than saying a prayer now and then before they ate a meal or whatever. They devoted themselves to prayer. That word devoting themselves means to persist. They were praying when they felt like it. They were praying when they didn't feel like it. They persisted. They were adhering to prayer. It it means to be intently engaged in, to remain constantly. In prayer that's what they were doing these people were praying and they were praying hard and they were believing that was the preparation for Pentecost they didn't know what was to come they didn't know Jesus plans they didn't know what was going to happen next maybe they thought Jesus was going to come back we know that later on they continued to look for him But they were unified and they were praying. This was the preparation. I want to suggest today, if we want to see the power of God, the Holy Spirit at work in the church again, God's people have to be unified and they have to be persistent in prayer. That should explain to you why the devil has so intently sought to divide the church, to fragment the Lord's church and God's people to split apart churches and congregations? For when he can disrupt unity, I guarantee you what else will be disrupted is a persistence and an adherence to praying. And I'll suggest to you, when we are not unified and when we are not on our knees praying together, understand we are powerless. And Satan has no fear of a powerless church. That's the preparation for Pentecost. Now let's move on to what gets all the press and all the attention. The power of Pentecost. This is verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice the power that was unleashed on the day of Pentecost. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire. That means little individual flames of fire. Came to appear above and rest above each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well... That gets our attention, does it not? Let me mention a couple of things about that. Notice, first of all, the phenomena, the sensational event that happened, the sensationalism of this experience. What was the phenomena? Basically, it was three things. First of all, there was a sound, and then there was a sight, and then there, were, there was the speaking. Okay, so look at those for just a moment. There was not a violent rushing wind. It did not blow the shutters open. It did not raise up everybody's hair as it blew. It sounded like that, but we have no evidence that it was actually a wind that could be felt or a wind that actually blew through the room. Okay? It was the sound from heaven, and it was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Literally, in the Greek language, there was the sound of a violent blast. A violent blast. Have you ever heard a violent blast of wind? Now, I've seen a lot of hard wind, you get out in West Texas and the wind will blow the mustard right off of your hot dog. It just will. It blows and it blows hard. But it's not violent unless one of those storms comes. Like a tornado wind or like a hurricane wind. When that wind hits and it's violent and it is frightening, understand what these people heard would have scared them, would have caused them to tremble in fear. It was a sound without the other evidence. What made that sound? What is making that sound? Then it was, as it were, there appeared to them... They saw these flames of fire over everyone's head. Understand, two evidences and two uh, metaphors for the Holy Spirit is wind and fire. And so, this fire was represented. Moses experienced God, the Spirit of God, in the fire and in the wind. A wind that broke rocks into pieces. And these people were experiencing it here. They both heard and saw the manifestation of God the Holy Spirit. Just like when Jesus was baptized, the people that were present that day saw the manifestation of the Spirit not in wind, not in fire, but in the form of a dove that descended from above it is the manifestation of the spirit and then what did they hear and experience they all began to speak in other tongues in other dialects in other language this is not la 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 la, 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 la speaking gibberish this is not an unknown tongue that nobody understands Everybody was hearing. We have evidence of that as we continue on, that they were speaking languages they had never studied, that they had never learned. It was a miracle from God. So that's the phenomena. Secondly, notice the filling. The power of Pentecost involved the filling with the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, listen to me. The phenomena of the wind and the fire and the speaking in other languages, that's what gets all the attention. That's what people even err in their doctrinal teaching and saying, we need to experience all of that all over again today. That that's the true evidence of salvation. That's the true evidence of the power of God. But I'm going to tell you what the main event was, was not the phenomena. The first time the Spirit came in His fullness to be, uh, to be the agent like water that the Lord is using to baptize the church, to give the Spirit. He came in a way that could be seen and heard the first time. But the main event, what really counts is the fact that everybody was filled with the Spirit. This is a first-time event. This filling with this Holy Spirit changed everything. The sound of a rushing wind didn't change anything. The, the tongues of fire over everyone's head did not change everything. The speaking in other dialects did not change everything. But the filling of the Spirit changed everything. Keep in mind that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was present. But he did not indwell God's people as a constant companion as he does you and me today. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on people, on God's chosen vessels, in order to accomplish some task or in order to write some scripture, but then he may leave. He would come and go. He would empower. Let me give you some examples. There are many in the Old Testament. But for instance, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter that the prophets in the Old Testament, that they spoke and they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Those Old Testament books were not recorded from man's ideas. The Holy Spirit would come upon those men, carry them along, give them the words, and they would write them down. They are the ancient words of Scripture that we have today. When King Saul was about to be anointed as the first king of Israel, do you remember what the Bible says about him? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. Wow. How cool is that? To have the Holy Spirit rush upon you. But understand that as he declined and slipped into sin and repeated sin and rebellion against God, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit abandoned him and deserted him as well. It doesn't mean that he ultimately lost his standing with God. If he is in heaven today, he's in heaven today because God kept him, but the Spirit did not stay with him. It's why David, King David, the Bible says the Spirit rushed upon David, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit for worship as well as for war. This very same man who could sling a stone and kill a giant was the sweet psalmist of Israel who could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He was empowered for worship and for war. But do you remember when he had sinned with Bathsheba? Do you remember his prayer in the Psalms where he prayed, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. He had seen what that did to Saul. He knew what it looked like when the Spirit abandoned somebody. And he prayed, God, don't let your Spirit abandon me. You see, with the coming of the Spirit, with the filling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we now have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, not just the temporary empowering of the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? From the day of Pentecost until today, until the end of time, we now have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not just the temporary empowering of the Spirit. And to focus on the empowering and to focus on the supernatural and to focus on the phenomena of Pentecost is to miss the real deal. Jesus had told them in Luke 24, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He had said in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We have this key truth, while the phenomena gets our attention and gets all the press. It was the filling that was the main event. Now, why is that important? That's important because every one of you who knows Jesus Christ as your Savior today Every person here who has received the truth of Jesus, repented of your sins, placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have what these people got 2,000 years ago. In fact, you may say, well, I, I would like to have that baptism with the Holy Spirit. You've had it. You got it. At the moment of your conversion, you were not only given new life, you were not only born again, but you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. He moved into you. Life. You say, Well, I didn't hear all that stuff, and I didn't see all that stuff. Well, understand, all that phenomena was a one time event the first time the Spirit came in His fullness. But the very fact that you trusted Christ as your Savior, that God called you to Himself, that God saved you, you have the Holy Spirit today. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise of the Word. So, that is the preparation for Pentecost. They were unified. They were praying. The power of Pentecost, there was the phenomena that was temporary and a one-time event, and the filling, which is a permanent event and experience for you and me. What is the product of Pentecost? What did Pentecost accomplish Well, we find this in verses 5 through 13, and I'm not going to read all those verses again. But remember, there were devout men in Jerusalem from all nations under heaven. There were people walking around this city that dressed differently, that looked differently, that spoke differently, that thought differently. But they were here, and each one of them began to hear in their own language, their own dialect. It's not that they all understood Greek. It's not that they all spoke Aramaic. They were hearing in their own languages. That's why the Bible says in verse 7 that they were amazed and astonished. How can these Galileans, that's another way of saying these are country boys from way up north that don't have much education. How are they speaking in our languages. How is it verse 8 that we hear each of us in his own native language and yet we hear them telling in our own tongues it just keeps getting repeated the mighty works of God. They were amazed that means to be beside oneself. Have you ever seen something that just made you just beside yourself with astonishment? They were perplexed. That means they were utterly at a loss for words and understanding. They are saying and asking, what does this mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. God was doing three things. And I want you to follow me here because this is very important. Don't let me me lose you in, in these words. Number one, the coming and the filling of the Holy Spirit prioritized made a priority of spiritual realities. What am I talking about? It made a priority for these people what was a priority for God. Spiritual realities. Let me give you an example. Before the day of Pentecost, you find these apostles, after the resurrection of Jesus, asking repeatedly are mentioning repeatedly about the coming kingdom. When they talked about a coming kingdom, what were they talking about? They were talking about, once again, Israel having a king, Israel casting off Roman control. Israel being prominent and preeminent. They had read the Old Testament prophecies that prophesied that one day in the culmination of all things, God would bring all things together under his Messiahship. And they were asking constantly, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even at his ascension, they're standing there, he's about to be carried into heaven on a cloud. Lord, now We've been waiting. We've been patient. Now, is this the time? Come on now. This is what we're living for. This is what we've been looking for. Those two disciples on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday. Do you remember their words? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Max Lucado calls that words painted gray with disappointment. We thought it was this Messiah, Jesus. We thought the kingdom was here. But understand, after Pentecost, these men never ask that question again. They never talk about the kingdom of, of Israel again. They realized now, they first began for the first time to understand that God's priorities at this point in time was not some kind of political kingdom, not some kind of literal physical kingdom with a king sitting on a throne, that it was all about King Jesus and it's a spiritual kingdom. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom that is here and alive right now that's just as literal as that future one but it's a kingdom that's in the hearts of men and women it's about Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart it's about Jesus sitting on the throne of my heart it's about surrendering my will to him and you surrendering your will to him and us walking in the fullness of the spirit's control and guidance of our lives Every single day. It made that real. And that's what these men preached. Ever since the coming of the Spirit. Read about what life was like in the last five or six verses of chapter 2. How they continued in the doctrine of and the gospel, how they met from house to house, how they took their meals with gladness, how they lived with joy and they were spreading the gospel. People were being saved every day. They were taking communion together. This is what life under King Jesus is supposed to be like. Not a bunch of individuals going their own way and randomly coming together periodically on Sunday to sing some songs, hear a sermon, and then go their way again. But it was life being lived with a common lordship and a common goal in life, so it prioritized spirituality. It did a second thing; it made the message intelligent and practical. It made the gospel intelligent and practical. These people were not only hearing in their own dialect and language; it was making sense to their hearts like nothing else ever had. For you see, those who were there that, would, that were from the Orient, from, from Israel uh, on eastward, towards Iran and towards what's modern-day India and beyond, those people, those Orientals, were mystics in their religious thinking. But those who lived to the West, the Greeks, were philosophical in their approach to all things the egyptians they were really different people they were more connected and in tune with the dead past than they were the living present they they devoted and built great pyramids to house those that they learned to embalm and in their own way to quote keep alive the romans on the other hand we're practical and down to earth. Might makes right. Whatever works is justifiable. We will just run over you. All these groups of people not only spoke different languages, they thought differently. They thought differently. And the religion, the pagan religions of any of those people would not fit the other groups. Now, they were all worshiping Judaism, but again, it was an Old Testament version of Judaism that had been distorted by the religious leaders into something that it really wasn't intended to be. But now the gospel of Jesus is being preached, and they're not only hearing in their heart language, it's making sense to their hearts. It's making sense. And can I say to you today that Christianity When it is properly preached, when the gospel is properly preached and taught, is the only religion in the world that receives all people, that makes sense to all people. And that's why it's important that we don't make it something that it's not. There's a real problem in the American church today, and I don't want to open a can of worms here, but I'm going to go ahead anyway. There's a real problem today in America that we have politicized our faith. We have politicized our faith. We have tried to tie our religious views and the gospel to maybe this way of thinking, a conservative viewpoint, or others a, a liberal viewpoint. And politics has divided the church today we have, we have seen people bail on churches because the church didn't worship Trump enough or it didn't worship Biden or enough, or that it required masks too much, or it didn't require masks enough. And I want to tell you, all of that is an abomination to God, and it is a distortion of the gospel message. And it tries to tie the gospel, the message of Christ, and the word of God to certain political viewpoints, certain ideologies, are certain national flags. And I want to tell you something. The gospel is not an American gospel. It is not a Russian gospel. It is not a gospel just for people living even in Ireland, cat. It is a gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ representing the kingdom of heaven that has come to all the world. And it's an amazing thing that when people are guided by the Spirit, not their politics, when they are guided and filled with, the, with God Himself and submissive to Him, how they can walk in step with one another and how they can preach a gospel that will impact people's lives no matter what language they speak or where they come from. So it prioritized spiritual realities, the kingdom of heaven, it made the message, the gospel, intelligent and practical. Third, and I close with this, it gave the apostles and the church great boldness. Great boldness. Never again do we find them cowering or hiding behind locked doors. Now we find them launching out in aggressive ministry, preaching the gospel in the marketplace in the public square and from house to house. Now we find them ready to fulfill that great commission for they have been empowered with a power from on high, the Holy Spirit who is ever with them to guide them, to save people's souls. Folks, we need another Pentecost today. We don't need the phenomena of it. We don't need the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire and we don't need the speaking in tongues. What we need are the effects of Pentecost. That we will put the spiritual kingdom first. That we will preach and teach a pure gospel and live it. And that we will do that with boldness. Amen? Well, the wind is silenced. The fire is not visible. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ is still being preached today. 2,000 years later, from thousands upon thousands, probably millions of pulpits of Christian churches all around the world. The pulpit might look different. Certainly it does. Some places it's like here. In a worship center, with a steeple up top, a little stained glass thrown in behind here to make it look like a church. For others, the Spirit is blessing His message in a school cafetorium, a hotel banquet room, under a tree or beside a river or in a jungle clearing somewhere halfway around the world. Maybe in a boys' club or a girls' club, a rented warehouse, Maybe in a living room in a quiet neighborhood. The pulpits all look different. But the same gospel is being preached. The initial signs of Pentecost assure us of its divine origin. The divine origin of preaching the gospel under the power that we read about in Pentecost. There's no human accounting for that. It was supernatural. But once the preaching was begun the Holy Spirit has sustained it and encouraged it expanded it and extended it around the world and through the centuries. The powerful Spirit-filled preaching has been the mark of the Church of Jesus Christ for more than 2,000 years. This is the new community of those who call upon His name. This is the fruit of that. This is that in continuation. And beloved, that same Spirit who came and did all those things 2,000 years ago is the very same Spirit that lives inside your heart, that leads you, that helps the Word of God be understandable to you, that guides you, that gives you strength when you need strength, and is the very one that will use you just like he used them to turn their world upside down. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit and the presence of your spirit. May we learn as a church every day how to more completely surrender our lives to the spirit to surrender our lives to your control and your guidance. Help us to be unified as one and help us to pray constantly without relenting and do a work in us that only you can do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Our hearts desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.